Well, today we are looking at the seventh church uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus writes to seven churches. And uh, I was reading this week in preparation for this message about two pastors from China who had been in prison for preaching the gospel for nearly 20 years. And they made a very surprising commitment while in that prison time. And they decided they would not pray for themselves, but they would pray about the poverty in the American church. What they called the poverty of wealth. They, they felt riches were a poverty hard to escape. And they said, how can Americans be free to love, worship, and serve Jesus when weighed down with all the things of this world? Ouch. There are many people, not only in our nation, but around the world, who see the prosperity and privilege of the American church as a blessing, approval, and endorsement. Could it be the opposite? Con consider what Jesus said to his church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Man, what Jesus has to say to this church in Laodicea is brutal. It's convicting and it's descriptive. And when you consider all of the historical and geographical context, it's even more poignant. You see, the city of Laodicea was quite wealthy and vain. <laughs> In fact, they refused funds from the Roman emperor after their city had been damaged by an earthquake. They were like, nope, we got this. We can handle it ourselves. It was also known, this city, for its industries of banking and textiles, especially garments made of expensive black wool that were all the rage in all of the Roman Empire. And they were known for their medicine, their medical school, and even their pharmaceuticals that they produced, things like salve for a hurting eye. The city's location on the Lycus River was ideal for transportation and trade, but it was far from perfect when it came to usable drinking water. You see, six miles north of Laodicea was the city Hierapolis, and it had hot springs known for their medicinal value. And then 10 miles to the southeast, Colossae had pure cold drinking water as it was at the foot of Turkey's tallest mountain. But Laodicea had neither. Their water was described by some historians as turbid with white mud. And another one said it was nauseous and undrinkable. Not exactly the kind you bottle and want to sell. So when Jesus said, I would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. It had a really big significance to these people. They understood what he was talking about. 
They themselves were a city living with lukewarm, tepid, dirty, putrid water. This lukewarm uh, metaphor is a favorite for us preachers now, isn't it? Especially during that midweek chapel service at youth camp, right? I'm looking at you, Chris Hyatt. (laughs) Some of you might have been there during that Wednesday night rededication sermon. But what was traditionally and what has been traditionally pushed in this passage is that hot is described as those who are good and lukewarm is mediocre but not very good and cold is the worst. So if you're hot, you're sold out and on fire for Jesus. And if you're cold, you're hard-hearted and completely against him. But if you're lukewarm, well, you're in trouble. Your light is growing dim, you're backsliding, and it's time to recommit your life to Jesus. There are some churches that even keep a scorecard, number of conversions, number of baptisms, number of rededications. But I'm not so certain that Jesus is saying that he'd rather you be stone cold against him if you choose not to be hot for him. I know that's what a lot of people have said. I've probably even thought that at times myself. But I really believe what Jesus is saying is that he wishes they would be spiritually useful. That he wishes they would have spiritual healing like the hot springs of Hierapolis. Or he wishes that they were spiritually refreshing like the cold water of Colossae. But instead, they're neither. They're neither hot nor cold. They're polluted, distasteful, devoid of any works and usefulness. Their spiritual condition was no better than their water supply. And when he said, I will spit you out of my mouth, in our vernacular, it would have sounded like, you make me want to vomit. You make me sick. This had to be pretty shocking for them because this church, uh, they thought they were pretty well off. They had made a pretty good name for themselves. They had no needs. Paul never had to take up an offering for them. They were self-contained. They were self-reliant. They did it well. I mean, just 30 years earlier, they had been named in the writings of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church in Colossae, that city's 10 miles away, He said in chapter 4 and verse 16 of Colossians, and when this letter has been read among you in Colossae, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Paul had a presence. He had had an apostolic authority with this group of believers in Laodicea. But things had changed and now... This is the only one of the seven churches in Revelation about which Jesus has nothing good to say. Think about that. He has nothing good to say about them in this letter. Every other church, there's been at least a glimmer of something positive. But with this church, no commendation whatsoever. No pat on the back for their labor. No acknowledgement of their struggles or recognition for holding fast to his name. No praise for their love, faith, and patient endurance. 
Not even the consolation that they still had a few people who hadn't soiled their garments. Jesus has nothing good to say about them. When I think about that reality, I keep thinking to myself, he's not talking about those who oppose him. He's talking about those who say they love him. He's not talking about Babylon or Rome or the synagogue of Satan that we've heard about in earlier letters. He's not even talking about the pagan city in which this church resides. He's talking about the church, his church, those who call upon his name and who are called by his name. <sighs> makes me want to sigh. I think it makes God sigh because it's been repeated throughout history. It's the same old song, just a different verse. We see it throughout the history of the Bible. God's people had these sorts of issues since the beginning. It's why God told his prophet Hosea, my people are bent on turning away from me. Hear that again. My people are bent on turning away from me. This, this church in Laodicea is bent on turning away, on growing lukewarm, on turning their back on the one who gave them life, yet they're still proud of their self-sufficiency and their prosperity, and they feel like they lack for nothing. One of my favorite preachers, the 19th century preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was known as the prince of preachers. He wrote this about this church. We often live our former credit, on our former credit, and trade upon our past characters, having still a name to live, though we are indeed dead. To be slandered is a dire affliction, but it is, upon the whole, a less evil than to be thought better than we are. In the one case, we have a promise to comfort us. In the second, we are in danger of self-conceit. The self-conceit of this church in Laodicea had resulted in a skewed assessment of themselves. And by the way, any such self-sufficiency and conceit in us will do the same in us. These kinds of realities, and when we read these scriptures, like Kevin encouraged us earlier, they need to be made personal. There's got to be a, a point where we examine ourselves in light of what Jesus is saying. He's not just talking to another group of people out there. He could be talking to you and me. I need to be asking myself, what is it I'm convinced of that Jesus is not? I need to ask myself, how is it I think myself better than I really am? Where have I thought I had my act all together, but it was only an act? How, when, where, why have I assessed myself to be rich, prosperous, in need of nothing, yet Jesus says I'm wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? Has our 
has our materialism as a country, has our consumerism, has our self-sufficiency, has the tremendous blessing that we've had as the American church led to a terminal case of affluenza, not influenza, affluenza, the maladies caused by affluence, where we get bored because we have so much, where it's never enough, where our pursuit of more is always what's right before us. Jesus is addressing that attitude, that richness, self-proclaimed richness and prosperity and having no needs at all in this group of his believers, of his disciples. And he's calling for them to change. Look what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus tells them they've been shopping at the wrong store that they need to change their buying habits. He's become their very own Dave Ramsey, telling them they need to change the way they spend their money. And did you notice how he correlates the things he tells them to buy from him and where they've been taking it to their city and buying it there? In essence, Jesus is calling them out for turning to worldly things rather than trusting him. And he's telling them, Turn back to me. And like I said, it's the same song, new verse. So he's been saying this before. Like when he said through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And it's also like when Jesus described in this parable in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What is it exactly that we're buying? Where do we shop? Are we dealing in worthless currency, financing our trinkets when we should be buying the field where the hidden treasure is? Are we wasting our time and resources on wealth that will fade away and garments that reveal our shame and man-made cures that will never heal our wounds? I want you to hear what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. And what God said through his prophet Isaiah, come, buy from me. I was talking to my wife about this and she said, it's not because those things in and of themselves are all bad. It's in that Jesus is the one who has what we really need. He's the one that provides for us the eternal treasure, the righteousness that is his new garment and his healing that he purchased for us on the cross. Come, Jesus says, come buy from me. Stop shopping in all those other places. And then 
Maybe he says the most comforting thing he said to this church up to this point. In verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those that he loves. Man, those were comforting words because he's not been saying very nice things up to this point because their condition's not been very nice. We know deep down, if Jesus didn't love and care for them, he wouldn't have written to them. So as heavy as this message is and as convicting as it might be, there's hope in the middle of it because out of his love for us, he has called upon us to repent with earnestness, with zeal, for he disciplines, he chastises, he reproves those that he loves. As a son and daughter of the Most High, it's good news that he comes looking for us when we've turned our back on him. He comes looking for the one, even if he has to leave the 99 behind him. And then Jesus ends with this in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This verse, my, my goodness, it's oftentimes used as an evangelistic verse. Um, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We, we often use it in quoting the gospel to someone and, and phrasing it and framing out that Jesus is there at the sinner's door, knocking on it, waiting for them to open. But did you notice the context here is not the unbeliever? It's the very church of Jesus Christ that should have had the open door all along. Jesus is knocking on the door of his own church, patiently, persistently knocking. And I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia that we talked about last week, that he is the one who opens a door that no one can shut, and he shuts a door that no one can open. And yet now here he is standing at our door knocking because we're the ones that tried to shut him out. Spurgeon said this again. He does not break bolt and bar and come in as he often does into a sinner's heart, carrying the soul by storm because the man is dead in sin and Christ must do it all or the sinner will perish. But he is here speaking to living men and women who ought also to be loving men and women. And he says, I wish to be among you. Open the door to me. We ought to open the door at once and say, come in, good Lord. We grieve to think we should have ever put the outside that door at all. Jesus, he's speaking to his church even today. We have, we have established for ourselves the riches of power and privilege and influence and political persuasion. 
We have built for ourselves all sorts of luxuries and houses and things that we can dwell in. We have been self-sufficient and prospered greatly. We say in many times, we don't have need. But Jesus is coming to the American church and he's saying the same things that he said to the church in Laodicea. He longs to come in through our shut doors and to sit and eat and intimately fellowship us. And this is just the foreshadowing of the greatest fellowship we will ever know at the wedding supper of the Lamb. But are we lukewarm? Have we grown useless? Have we become self-reliant? Has our assessment of ourselves been one of riches and prosperity and independent living, and yet we are truly wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? Where have we been shopping? Where do we spend our money? Jesus says, come by for me. And do you hear, listen carefully, do you hear Jesus knocking at your door? He wants to come in. He wants to dine with you. And he wants to heal and make you useful again. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen. Donna's going to come and join us. We're going to pray for you as a community and those that are listening this morning. Let her share anything that the Lord may have said to her in the midst of our time and just encourage you the best that we can. It was good. Thank you. Chris used a phrase um, when he was describing hot and cold water that it wasn't about being hot or cold. It was about being useful. And it made me think of the passages in 2 Timothy that talk about us being useful to the master. And so I want to read a portion of them. Uh, part, of, uh, part of this is from the NIV and part of it is from the message. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, and some are for special purposes and some are for common use. And so he says, if we confess the name of the Lord and we turn away from wickedness, we become useful, useful to the master, prepared for any good work. The message describes that as being the kind of container God can use to present gifts to his guests. Wow. I love that, considering the teaching that we've had on hospitality, that really, that really impacts me. Being the kind of container God can use to present gifts to his guest. That's what Christina was talking about this morning in her testimony. Yeah. And then he continues with instruction based on being useful. Run away from indulgence, from our own preferences. Run after mature righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Joining those who are in honest and serious prayer before God. Mm -hmm. 
refusing to get involved in foolish discussions that end up in arguments. God's servants must not be argumentative, but gentle listeners and teachers who are not easily offended, working firmly but patiently with those who refuse to obey in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. You never know how or when God might sober them up with a change of heart and turn them to the truth, enabling them to escape the trap of the enemy where they are caught and held captive, forced to run his errands. There's just so much there. But God is giving us an opportunity to be useful to the master. And as Kevin said at the beginning of of our time today, he's pointing out the places where we can't be useful to him because we are neither hot nor cold, because our view of ourselves is not the truth. (laughs) We've deceived ourselves and we're not lining up with the plumb line that Jesus represents. But even in that rebuke, he always comes with a solution. (laughs) And my prayer for us today is that as we let him lay bare our hearts, that we receive the solution. Yeah, um, that's good. And that we become useful to the master. That's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for words that are both convicting and empowering, for words that cut to the quick and yet give us hope. You are the plumb line and the solution when we are far from that measuring point. You don't speak these words lightly um, and we do not take them lightly. We want to be useful. We want to do the right things in your name so that someone else can also repent and be set free from the trap of the enemy. You're inviting us into freedom today and inviting us to participate in the freedom you're bringing to your guests. Make us fit containers, Lord. Each of us in hearing this word today are aware of at least one place that you've put your finger on today. And Father, I don't want to, we don't want to shrug that off. We want to respond and turn away from wickedness and pursue righteousness, love, peace, so that we may be fit for your use, for your mission. Yes, Lord. Lord, we hear your words to the churches in Asia Minor. We've heard and studied and examined what you were saying to them, and we recognize the significance of those words Mm -hmm. because they're, they're for us too. You are still walking and moving among your people. You are still walking among the golden lampstands of your churches. And you were still very much present in all that is happening here. Your kingdom is advancing. And of the increase of your government and peace, there shall be no end. 
And so what we experience today, we recognize you are on the throne and advancing your purposes. Mm. Help us, oh God, to respond to you, to not make self-assessments that claim prosperity and riches and self-reliance when indeed we are broken and wretched and pitiful, naked, poor, and blind. Lord, help us see ourselves the way you see us and therefore have the hope that things can change and that we can repent with zeal and earnestness, that we can agree with you and not with what the enemy says or what we've said about ourselves Mm -hmm. or what the world says about us, but about what you say about us. Lord, we ask that these words would cause us to open the door that we would not sit back and listen to the knocking and ignore it. We would get up. We would open the door. And you would come in and dine with us and we with you. And we would receive once again the things that you want us to walk out and not the things we've made for ourselves. Yes, Lord. Let these words plant in our hearts. Let them plant deeply and not be scattered or eaten up, or snuffed out. Let them bear good fruit in us. May, as we come through these days, may we know more certainly that we are following in your steps. Thank you for these people, all that have been watching today. I pray a blessing upon them and their households. May they have the grace and peace of God in their midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We love you. Yes, we We do. We love you very much.